I'm Aria Schwartz along with Rachel Galligan and welcome to the Windsider Show where it's all about the W. The WNBA season might be over, but basketball does not stop. We are honored to be joined by our next guest, one of, if not the most influential people in women's basketball, Rebecca Lobo. show please consider joining our patreon community for less than a cup of coffee a month you can directly so show support for the hard work we do covering the w and don't forget to see the amazing staff's written content over at winsider.com that's winsider.com we have a hall of famer a college legend a WNBA and national team star turned one of the biggest names in women's basketball coverage rebecca lobo it is a giant honor to have you on the show how you doing well, I have to start with two questions. My first question for you is the music. Thank you. Thank you. Where, where um, Is that something you put together on your own like keyboard or what's going on there? Uh, no, I have a, a good friend of mine, uh, Mike Negrin. He actually traveled to Seattle for the All-Star Game a few years back and then to Minnesota and made some cool uh, All-Star Game videos. And he was like, you guys, you guys need a better song, a little intro music, so I'll make it. And he was inspired by old school video games. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad we got that out there. The second one, elaborate. If people want to join your Patreon community, exactly how do we do that? Patreon.com backslash Windsider. We do exclusive coverage. We do exclusive podcasts uh, and content right there for for fans. We don't want too much to be behind the paywall because we want to grow the game and, and get as much WNBA coverage out there. We like to give you a little something extra, like a custom graphic uh, by our graphics designer uh, for joining. Oh, great. Well, because you guys have been putting a ton of content out there. We really appreciate it. And uh, I'm a big believer in people supporting financially as well, the content they're looking for. So um, I will. I, I was not aware that I, there was extra graphics behind the paywall. So I'm going to have to get in on that action, guys. We might be able to make a custom graphic of you. <laughs> we should do a Rebecca Lobo wallpaper. That'd be pretty good. That'd be pretty, pretty dope. We're going to do that. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, Rebecca, we are so happy to have you. I mean, you are fresh off the finals. Um, you and Ryan did a phenomenal job. And hey, shout out to everyone who was uh, working behind the scenes and on the scenes. Um, Holly Rowe, everyone who did such a phenomenal job this season covering the league. Um, you know, we, we're going to get into kind of the, the matchup um, later on in the show. But, you know, you, you have, as Aria said, you've become really the face of women's basketball, at least for me. And when we talk about college basketball, when we talk about WNBA, you're everywhere. You know everything. You're like the oracle. Um, it feels like at this point. But I, I want to, you're so used to talking about everybody else. I want to talk about you. I want to make you talk about yourself a little bit more. Um, and we've got a lot of stuff to ask you. But I want to start with a quote here. And I, this really resonated with me. Um, no one in all the years that I have been here has had the impact on the court and off the court that Rebecca has had and has continued both in the WNBA as being one of the founders and continuing to promote the game on ESPN and all the other things that Rebecca has done to further the role model that she is for all the young people that look up to her, emulated what she has been, a great student, a great athlete, a great person, someone that I've cherished to have the opportunity to work with and to call my friend. That is from the great Gina Oriema, um, your, your former coach. And I just feel like that's a perfect quote for you. 
Um, I'm curious, you know, as we get into kind of your career, I want to start from the beginning. What has it been like this journey for you um, in particular, starting with your experience with Gino? (laughs) The journey has certainly been, been unexpected. Um, You know, I came along in an era, there was no professional basketball in the U S there were very few women's games um, even on television. So like kids who played basketball in my generation played because you loved it. You didn't play it to, get any attention or any notoriety because those things didn't exist for girls playing basketball or women playing basketball in those days. So, um, you know, I was just like the awkward, really tall girl who liked playing basketball. And, um, and I'm really fortunate that, you know, I chose to go to the university of, excuse me, the university of Connecticut. Um, it was not yet a powerhouse. It was uh, this up and coming school in the original big East. And, um, and I really, really liked Coach Oram and I, I really liked Chris Daly and um, and my heart told me to go to UConn and so I did and and playing basketball at UConn completely changed my life. If I hadn't played there, I would, you know, the last twenty five years would have been a completely different journey for me. So um, a lot of it was just you know I was a kid who liked to play basketball because I was really tall and uh, and all of a sudden boom 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 this this life and this puzzle comes together for me where I get to play basketball, get to play in a WNBA that, you know, didn't exist even when I was a senior in college. And then the last 15 years, I've been on this amazing journey where I get to talk about this game that I love. So I've just been really, really fortunate. Title IX played a huge part in that. I was born in 1973. Title IX was passed in 1972. I benefited in a big, big way from from Title IX and it finally being implemented and, and really followed by the time I got to college. So, um, you know, I, my story is, is certainly one of good timing and uh, a lot of luck. Well, you may downplay it, but you did, you were more than just a tall person. You also set some records in high school, but I'm not going to get into that. I want to talk about UConn. In 95, UConn goes 35-0, and wins the national championship. You carried home basically every award that year. And it was UConn's first title, and you touched on this a little bit. We know, you know, growing up in today's age, covering women's basketball, learning about women's basketball, we all know the dynasty that is UConn. But what was the pitch, and what were the reasons for you back then to go to this team that really hadn't established themselves yet? Yeah, it's funny because, like, it wasn't it wasn't then, and I don't think it is even now, like, a pitch when you're dealing with Coach Oriama. He's, you know, one of the most honest people that you'll be around. It's um, And, and even in, in my recruiting process, it wasn't even like he spent a lot of time or Chris Daly spent a lot of time, you know, selling the school to me. They were just um, getting to know me. And um, I liked them. I thought they were funny. I thought they were interesting. Um, You know, my parents were both teachers in Connecticut. Even though I grew up in Massachusetts, my parents were teachers in Connecticut. And like my, they did not want me to go to UConn. My mom was like, that's a safety school. You have a chance to go to Stanford or Notre Dame or Northwestern or Virginia. Like, don't you want to go to a school like that? And, um, you know, I, I just felt like, you know, I can get a really good education no matter where I go if I want to. And, um, and I really, really wanted to play for this guy. And I really wanted to play for Chris Daly. And um, and it was, you know, one of the best decisions I've I've ever made in my life. And and again, it wasn't a pitch. It was just him. You know, he, he never told me, you know, that you'll start. All he said is you'll get what you earn. Um, I just felt like that guy could um, could get the most out of me out of, 
uh, as a basketball player and that I would enjoy playing basketball for him. And he's really hard to play for because he is so honest and he is so demanding and he never lets you like skate by in any way. Every time you make a mistake, every single time you make a mistake, he points it out to you and everybody else that's on the court. And, um, and it makes you accountable every minute. It's one of the reasons his players have had so much success and his teams have had so much success is um, de- excellence is demanded of you every single day. And it's funny because now I get to go and watch their practices sometimes. Well, before COVID-19, I could go and watch practices um, if I was covering the team. And, um, and he's still the same now as he was you know, when he was younger and when I was playing for him, just his demanding nature. And, um, it's, it's different from, from anywhere else that I've, um, that I've watched and been. I think an interesting aspect of this is like we talked about nowadays, you look at this and, and half the WNBA, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but half the team has come from UConn and they have so many accolades, so many MVP awards, so many first team, second team, all that jazz. Do you feel a sense of pride and accomplishment for your part in starting this dynasty and creating the sisterhood of UConn in the W? I certainly, as I've gotten older and they've done more, um, I've taken pride, I've taken pride in my place in it and our team's place in it, you know, because when, when we won a national championship, that was 1995, that was their first one. It was my senior year. Like we had no idea it was going to be the first of the first of many, the first of 11. Like none of us knew that. We just knew that we accomplished something that we'd been working really hard for. But as it, as the years have gone by and I've watched the team have success and watched Coach Oriyama become, you know, the best women's basketball coach in the history of the game, um, you know, the coach of the most championships and All-Americans and all that, like, of course, I, I'm, I'm proud of our part in helping start all of that. Well, and then, okay, so your, your, your collegiate career gets done. You just win a, a minor a national championship, um, the first of many. Again, we talk about you really just being um, that inaugural, I feel like, just group that started that, which is incredible. But the WNBA didn't start till 97. So you yep. graduate in 95. The WNBA's first season isn't till 97. Um, there's, so there's a gap there. And, and explain to us kind of what happened during that time. I know you won a, a gold medal. Um, in the 96 Olympics, but you know, you, you weren't able to just be drafted straight out of college. Like we talk about now. So what was kind of that period of time like before even the WNBA began? Yeah, it was, it was interesting because, um, I actually missed my college graduation when were graduations like May or June, because I was trying out for the national team and in the 92 Olympics, the U S didn't win gold. And so, um, USA basketball wanted to do something differently for 96. The 96 games were in Atlanta and so I tried out for the national team. This is on the heels of, of UConn winning the national championship. And, and their 11 players were selected for this national team. And while we were out at the tryouts, we had to sign this contract saying that, um, you know, for the next year, we would devote our lives basically to USA basketball. We get paid $50,000, which was a huge pay cut for some of the women who were playing overseas, Katrina McLean, Teresa Edwards, probably Lisa Leslie. And we were going to train that entire year. We were going to go around and play games. I think we played um, 30-plus games against some of the best colleges in the country. We were also going to play internationally. We played in Russia and China and Australia. So that entire year, we were training for the 96 games. Well, the marketing arm of USA Basketball was um, NBA Entertainment. So 
with the players didn't know this, but at the time the NBA was kind of using that team as a test balloon to see, uh, does the U S have an appetite for a professional women's basketball? And, um, and I think that kind of barnstorming tour solidified the fact that yes, there is that appetite here because, um, as that year went on, you know, 95 through 96, the league started to really lay the foundation or the NBA started to lay the foundation for, um, for a WNBA. So it was, it was kind of cool to, to, as we went along to, to realize what process was happening. And at the same time, uh, the other professional basketball league, the American basketball league was, was, um, coming together. They started in the fall of 1996, right after the Olympics. And, and most of the women on that Olympic team ended up playing in the ABL, but, um, that was kind of that, that filling year between 95 and 97 was actually a ton of basketball being played, the Olympics happening, and then the NBA going full steam ahead on starting the W. Well, the W starts in 97. You're allocated to the Liberty. You play there till 01. You lost in a championship game. 99, I believe you tore your ACL, uh, so you didn't get to play in that final series. I do want to ask you, though, real briefly before we get going, is there a sense of if it was because in the first season it was a one and done championship game? Do you have a little regret that if it was a series, you might have been able to pull out a victory and maybe not allowed the Comets to uh, go on that streak? Yeah. Um, I think that the Comets were the best team in the league that year. Uh, would we, if it was a three game series, could we have won a game? Yeah, yeah, we definitely could have. That was a that was a pretty good team and, and we had and it was tough because it was like we had just won a single elim- elimination in in phoenix um to get us to the championship game so um you know most people would say yeah if it was a series we would have won it the houston comets were really really good that year and in a series probably still would have taken us but we probably could have gotten a game from them so talk to me about this being allocated to the liberty because rachel touched on it a little bit earlier it's a very different aspect to joining a team than we have now when you graduate and you're drafted, you're traded, whatever it is. What was it like? Like, what did you know going into 97? What did you know as the league kind of formed? And what was what were the representatives telling you as like, hey, you're about to be put on this team, basically? Yeah, we didn't know much. You know, like Cheryl Swoops and I were the first two to sign with the WNBA. And, and then shortly after that, Lisa Leslie signed. So for a while... The league had three players. <laughs> so we were everywhere. You know, we were in commercials. We were at all-star events, the NBA all-star events. Like they had us out everywhere as the face, the faces of this league because they only had a couple faces at that point. Um, wow. And then like I knew I was going to get allocated to New York. That made sense. Lisa was going to be in L.A. Cheryl, you know, we were all going to be, you know, in our home areas. Cheryl was going to be in Houston. Um, but I didn't know much. And even when they had the draft and I think they had like a secondary allocation and then the draft, like Teresa Weatherspoon was the only other player who I knew of, because I remember watching her when I was in high school, watching her compete for national championships with Louisiana tech. Um, but it was a huge unknown. We knew we were going to play in NBA arenas. We knew the names of our teammates and pretty much that was it. Well, and then, so from there, you know, you spend the bulk of your career with the Liberty and in, two, in 2002, you're traded to the Comets. You were there for a season and in 2003, traded to Connecticut where Mike Tebow was the head coach at the time. And that kind of, at that point, wraps up your career. And that gets us into where we are now, um, post WNBA career as an analyst. And I, I just have to ask, like, yes, there's a lot of time that's gone between 2003 and now, but 
you know, you, you are, like I said, the face of, of our game. How did you make that decision? How did you get into this? You know, when you decided to hang them up, like what happened after that? You know, I decided to retire in 2003, but I'd had, I'd had a chance to do some work at ESPN when I was still a player. Um, I did studio work for them in 1997, 98, 99 during the tournament. And, um, and I was terrible, but, uh, but like I, I had, I'd gotten a little bit of a taste of what it was like to be on the broadcast side. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but there's still, even at that time, there weren't a ton of opportunities. There weren't a lot of games on, so it's not like you could go, you know, call 10 or 15 or even 20 games in a season. There might've been three or four games and, you know, Robin Roberts was going to do them. Uh, Mimi Griffin was going to do them along with her. So, um, so I got a little bit of a taste of it. And then when I, when I retired after the 2003 season, a woman named Pat Lowry, who was the coordinating producer for WNBA at ESPN at the time, just got in touch with me and said, you know, would you be interested in, um, in being a sideline reporter? And so I, I, I was, and, um, and I was able to start there and did that for a bunch of years and then got a chance to start calling some games and did that for a bunch of years. And eventually, um, you know, got a chance to, you know, work my way to, to call a finals. But um, I was really lucky because like when they, when, how ESPN operates, at least in those days, it was, you know, you're you interested in being a sideline reporter. Sure. Okay. They tell you how to get to your first game, but they don't tell you a single thing of what it means. They don't tell you what to do. And I was lucky because Doris Burke was my analyst. I think Mark Jones might've been the play-by-play. And so Doris was like, okay, you know, that day between shoot around in the game, she sat down with me and was helping me. And, and then um, that winter I had a chance to be a sideline reporter for college games and same thing. Um, Doris Burke was the analyst. And so she really, really groomed me and talked to me and helped me along because ESPN gives you zero, um, at least in those days, zero tutelage or um, information on exactly what the job entails. And, uh, and so a lot of it was just like, getting a chance to learn from, you know, the absolute best in the business in terms of Doris. Absolutely. Well, and that that brings a great question I was going to ask you, but I want to ask about the analyst side as well in terms of, you know, mentors or people that you've really looked up to. Was there a player or someone during your playing career that you really wanted to emulate? And then same thing with the analyst side. Was it, was it Doris Burke? Well, as a, well, growing up, um, I'm from Massachusetts. So like those were the days when the Celtics were killing everybody. And so, um, Larry Bird was, you know, the player that I grew up loving, loving. And then when I got older, um, I was a big David Robinson fan. That's why I chose them to wear number 50 at UConn. Love it. And, um, and, and then no, not, like as an analyst, again, there weren't enough games on to, um, to really tune your ear to somebody and say, Oh, I really like the way they call a game. Um, but you know, when I first started, I just, you know, as a sideline reporter, what you're doing all game is listening to the broadcast. And so for me, that was being able to listen to Doris. Um, and then, you know, later on I was a sideline reporter when Carolyn Peck was an analyst. So you, you, you get an idea and a feel for the different ways that people call games, but, now I have more of an ear, you know, I'll, I'll watch a game and, and listen and be like, Oh, I, you know, it doesn't even have to be basketball. Like, Oh, that, that person has a smile in their voice or that person just explains something really well. And, and, and you, you get a different ear when you're watching of, of the analysts that you like for whatever, whatever the reason. I just want to say 
this this is a point that I want to make, and and I watch a ton of basketball. It's, I swear it's all that I do throughout the season. One thing I really respect about you, Rebecca, and I'm not trying to just butter you up. I'm serious. Is you keep it real. You know, it's not all rainbows and cupcakes all the time. You 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 will. You're not afraid to give your opinion out there. You're you you will tell it like it is. If there's a horrendous call, you'll call it like it is. Um, and I I just think we need more of that. And I really respect that you do do that. Okay, sorry for interrupting, Aria. <laughs> Don't forget to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app for Winsider Daily, the only podcast that breaks down every single WNBA game. If you're looking for more articles to read, that's winsider.com. And if you want some visual content, youtube.com backslash winsider. No, that's actually a perfect segue into this because now I want to talk about the 2020 WNBA season and forward. I'm curious your thoughts on this season. Obviously, unprecedented, crazy time could be said about literally every aspect of it. Honestly, I'm just jealous that I didn't get to be in the bubble wobble to see all the stuff that went on behind scenes when games weren't going on. But I'm curious for you, what were kind of surprises and disappointments of the season in, in terms of the play? Um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say there were any disappointments for me. I mean, coming into this thing, um, it was just such a crazy time. I, I was curious and I was talking to, to some of my colleagues before the season started, um, you know, we've been spoiled in all past years that generally the second the season starts, we're watching high level basketball because all of these women are coming immediately from their overseas team. So even if they might be a little fatigued, they're um, on the top of their game, they're sharp, they're playing well. And, um, and we usually get spoiled by that as soon as the season starts. And my concern coming into this year was, man, like, is it going to be really bad basketball because so many, you know, players haven't been doing anything or have been confined to home workouts? Like, how bad is the product going to be compounded by we're going to have more games on television than ever before. So I hope it's not like, oh, here's a ton of women's basketball and they're going to be terrible. And so I was pleasantly surprised that that wasn't the case. Like the the first few games, at least that we were able to cover, I was like, oh, this is better than I expected it to be. But, I, you know, you kind of had to have a real realistic expectation going in. Um, and, you know, the only disappointing thing, you know, I love when playoff series can go five games, all of them, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like it would have been great if the Seattle Minnesota series went five. It would have been great if this championship series had gone five, just because it's our, you know, it's a big showcase and you want people who are tuning in to, for the first time to say, wow, these women can really, really play. And, um, and so I feel like, you know, we, we, we would have loved to have two more games of that, but, um, but like, I, to play every other day is really, really hard. You know, a couple of years ago, um, I remember thinking that when they had the shortened season because of the world championships, um, so that would have been 2018, just thinking, man, the, the the Players Association cannot allow this to happen again. There's too many games in a short amount of time. They've got to be tired. You know, there could be injuries. And then this year, out of necessity, it was way worse than that in terms of just the frequency of games, which is great for the the fan and the viewer, but had to have been brutal on the players' bodies. So um, overall, watching all of the games, I was pleasantly surprised that one, they were able to pull this thing off in the middle of a pandemic, that they were able to show that our entire society, um, that if you follow the science and, and use testing, that you can live somewhat of a normal life. And, um, and I was really pleased by um you know the performances that we were able to enjoy 
Well, speaking of the injuries, there's a lot of ankle rolling, a lot of ankle injuries, which I didn't expect that was going to, like, going into the season, I definitely thought, okay, there's going to be an uptake in injuries and probably, like, one style of injury. I did not see ankle rolls and sprained ankles as the one would have loved to see more of Sabrina's rookie season. Right. Um, and, and also, to your point, like, early on in the season, I think I expected more of, like, low-scoring games. And there was a quote that came out from Cheryl Reeve at one point. You might have even been the one who brought this to light uh, on one of the broadcasts. But she spoke about how she focused on defense because we knew all these other teams were focusing so much on offense. And we wanted to make sure that we had a defense. And, hey, it worked for them, getting them to the semifinals. Uh, It was a a great season for the Lynx. I want to talk about the finals real quickly. The Storm win the championship, and they go 6-0 in the playoffs. Not what we would love to see in regards to going to five. A lot of attention has gone to the Storm, their potent offense, the depth of this team, their suffocating defense, their all-star lineup. Like, I could go on and on, but I want to look at the Aces for a little bit. Obviously, they missed Hamby big time in the finals. A take that I've kind of been pushing, and I'm curious your thoughts on this because you're an elite basketball mind. Liz Cambage, Kelsey Plum didn't play. I look at Plum missing as kind of the key, bigger issue for this team during this season, which I realize is kind of ridiculous because they were the number one seed and and just lost in the finals. But I kind of looked at the guard play as more of an issue and also not having Liz there as an opportunity for Asia to step into that MVP role. What kind of wasn't working in your mind for the Aces? They just didn't have enough, you know, they like to compete with Seattle. Seattle's going to score a lot of points. And to your point, in terms of the guard play, they didn't have enough guard scoring. You knew that was going to be one of the concerns for them um, when when Kelsey Plum got injured, just because of all the you know really good things that Danielle Robinson provides, you know, consistent scoring. Um you know, especially in a half court game, wasn't going to be one of those things. So Asia had a tremendous year. I thought the Vegas overall had a tremendous year. How many people mm-hmm. expected them to to finish as the one seed? Um, and and the biggest thing for them um, in terms of the matchup was with Seattle was Hamby, because uh, the the Seattle Post, as mobile as they are, and you talk about their starting post and Howard and Brianna Stewart. Um, when as soon as Hamby went down, Vegas just didn't have an answer for how to match up with them. And and even Bill, I think in game one, when he went for a really short stretch with his small lineup, um, it was enough to see that 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 small lineup with Angel at the four was just too small, and they still wouldn't weren't going to be able to compete with the front line of Seattle. So, um, it but it felt coming in like as long as Seattle stayed healthy, that this was going to be their year. You know, it that was just the sense. They had ev- everybody played. They didn't have anybody opt out. For the most part, they stayed healthy. I mean, Sue missed half the games, but you knew that, you know, she was getting ready to be to be uh effective in the fi- or in the playoffs in the finals. So it felt like it was it was going to be Seattle's year and it would have to be somebody else ripping that away from them. And and it, and when Hamby got hurt, my sense was just like, ah, I just don't think they have enough. And especially as hard fought as that semifinal series is with Connecticut, like that had to take a lot of out of Vegas, both physically and mentally. Um, then they only had one day off in between. So, um, you know, they had a great season. They just ran into, I mean, Seattle was the best team in the league. Well, and, and I pointed this out at one point that I almost think that having the game one of Seattle, Minnesota be delayed almost hurt Vegas because 
Then they did. They got the the bad end of both sides, where they had played a series to five and had to go immediately into the finals. But also the team they're going up to, who just swept Minnesota, didn't have that elongated break that maybe a little rustiness would have shaped back into the game. So they got. They really. Uh, it was. It was just rough. But looking forward to the future of this league, with so many players not playing this season, do you see the power structure of this league dramatically changing next year when hopefully we have a semi-normal season or a normal season and a lot of these stars come back? Well, that's the interesting thing. And that's the kind of the cool thing with a new collective bargaining agreement is not only these players coming back, but how free agency plays into this. You know, Liz Cambage getting the medical exemption, well, that still counts as a year of service for her. So now she's a free agent. Right. Like free agency last year showed us, oh, this can really finally have an impact in the WNBA. So, um, you know, so as we're all kind of thinking of, of all right, what, is, what are teams going to look like next year? Well, first we have to really study who's a free agent and uh, and how many other free agents are on the team or, or what is the salary cap structure look like for that team? Um, it's, it's gotten, you know, it's definitely going to be more complicated and more interesting because, all right, who's coming back? Who's a free agent? What's going to happen in free agency? And uh, everybody's head's going to be spinning until things settle a little bit right before the draft. Well, and as we've seen, I mean, as you kind of mentioned, the movement, the last few free agencies, has been just crazy. Um, and, you know, another part of that is the hype around it's really fun too. And, and we're seeing players with a little bit more, you know, because of the collecting collective bargaining agreement, you know, just movement. And I, I feel like that was not the case a few years ago, but I do kind of want to pick your brain. I mean, you, you started the WNBA, you know, you played in the very first game, if I'm not mistaken. And here we are today in 2020, 2020 talking about the WNBA and, and every and the, and the CBA and everything around it. What has changed? I mean, we, we could probably have an entire episode about this, but what has changed in the league since those early days until where we are now? Uh, everything's changed. I mean, everything's changed. Even in the early days, like the players, when you signed contracts, you didn't sign a contract with your team. You signed it with the league. And I believe the pay you got wasn't even, it was like solidly set in, based on your years of service, like there was no negotiation period. I don't even think there was like free agency in those days. It, it was different. The play on the court was, was not to the level where it is now. Um, the, the platform that the female athletes had then compared to now, like I was just sitting there watching and covering a lot of the games and just so proud of the voice that, that the players use this year when talking about social justice and the voice that they were using talking um, about the women involved with Say Her Name. Like, back in my day, I think uh, Sue Wicks was the one, uh, in the entire league, was the one openly gay um, player. And, and, and how closeted everyone sort of felt in those days. And now these women are so comfortable and we're, and granted that the, the times we're living in have changed but the way they're able to use their voice for good and for good of social justice and for change and to encourage people to vote and all of that, to me, you know, as, as much as the play on the court has improved and as much as the league itself has changed, to me, watching these women um, being role models for younger girls, watching these women use their voices, watching these women being comfortable in who they are and, and outspoken about who they are, just brings me a tremendous amount of pride. And then that's the area that 
Um, you know, I just love to see how, how much has changed over the course of the last uh, 24 years. Well, I recently had a conversation with Tina Thompson and she was talking about those early years and like the things that you guys had to do getting out in the community or just marketing yourselves or promoting yourselves. Yeah, you talked about the commercials, which are icon- iconic, by the way, we should completely bring those back. But she was saying that like, you know, just literally getting out into the streets and like spreading the word yourselves that this was happening and this was a league. I mean, how, how just, how has it changed from a marketing perspective in your eyes? Well, it's interesting actually, Rachel, because I think in some ways the marketing was better early on. Um, you know, when the league league first started, um, if you were watching an NBA semifinal or finals game like if you're watching the eastern conference finals western conference finals or finals at least once but often twice there was a commercial promoting the WNBA. like that was the first campaign we got next there was a at least one commercial sometimes two though in those days nike reebok um fila even like they not only signed players and, and they still sign players now but there were multiple commercials again not only in WNBA games but during like NBA playoff games, wow. you like I and Spalding had commercials. Uh, you know, there was um, Mattel Barbie had commercials <laughs> like I think in some ways uh, and marketing was different then, of course. You know, now you have a lot more on social media. But in terms of mainstream television commercials, uh, players with shoe deals who were in commercials, um, the back then you would see a lot more than you even see now. And again, I understand how, how that's all shifted in terms of, you know, ads on Instagram or social media and all that sort of thing. But, um, but the league put, put a lot of uh, financial might and power into marketing the WNBA in the early days. Well, I think that's a great point. As someone who was growing up as a, you know, a young junior high kid at these ages, I knew when the WNBA was going to be on. I knew because I was watching the Bulls or I was watching the NBA with my dad, seeing those commercials and seeing the Barbie and, and the diner commercials and all that stuff that was taking place, that this, this was a thing. And I knew when it was going to be on. So I think that's a good point. Uh, when This is a whole completely different topic when talking about the marketing and reaching that younger women's basketball audience. But no, that's a great point. And that's interesting to hear you say that. Um, I know Arya has a couple of questions. I'm sorry to kind of go on a ramble there. Sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. I was going to say that I, first of all, my favorite WNBA throwback commercials have to be the diner and then the Super Deli one. Number 10, number 10. That's the absolute best. (laughs) And then she like slaps something out of like two people's hands going for the high. I, I, all about it. I, I love it. Yeah. That was American express. If people don't know what we're talking about, they just have to Google American express Sue bird commercial. Oh my God. So good. And wasn't there, wasn't Jewel, who was it? Who's the current WNBA player who was in one of those commercials as a kid? Oh, that was, a, it was for the Atlanta dream. That was Asia Durr was in a, a, a local commercial for the Atlanta dream back in the day. See, that's what I'm talking about. That that's the, the, the full circle that I love to see, but I have to put you on the hot seat. I know this, you have family ties to Minnesota. You have personal ties to Houston Comets. It's the question on every WNBA fans mind in a best of five series. Who are you putting your money on? Links or comets, and you can pick whichever you know year of the dynasties you I'm want. I'm like in 2020. Um, <laughs> oh, ooh, mm. 
Because there was a great segment on KG's uh, Area 21 where I believe it was Cynthia Cooper and Lindsay Whalen sitting there. And it was the most Minnesota Lindsay Whalen experience ever because Cynthia Cooper was going on this rant about how the Lynx wouldn't be able to stop her and they just wouldn't have these answers. And Lindsay Whalen's just sitting there twiddling her thumbs, being very passively aggressive Minnesotan, being like, yeah, sure, whatever. But you could see on her face, she was like, nah, we got it. Well, you know what's funny is like back in the day when Houston was just crushing everybody, like they ran the pick and roll and the pick and pop to perfection. And that was like when teams first started running that action. Um, And like, especially when it was Coop and uh, Tina Thompson, like who had ever seen a four who could like really hit deep threes in a pick and pop? So this is the thing when you when you look at maybe one of the more recent Minnesota teams is. Over the course of time, people have really figured out defensive actions on how to slow that down. You still can't mm. stop it. But certainly what Minnesota would have thrown at them defensively would be very different than what my New York Liberty team did in 1997. <laughs> because nobody was icing screen and rolls then. Nobody was like doing a variety of things that they can do now. Um but no, I'd really have to digest the stats and look at those rosters to uh, to see how that matchup would look. I think I got a sense of where you're leaning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, is she trying to sidestep this? We got to get her to answer it. Um, okay, so you're done. The WNBA is done. Um, we're, 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 we're headed into the collegiate season, but we've got a little bit of time here with some unknowns with that. What do the next couple of months look like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I really have absolutely no idea. Um, it's, it's kind of how I was in April and May and June. Like, okay, is there going to be a WNBA season? And then we found out there was. All right, are we going to be broadcasting the games? Oh, we're going to be broadcasting twice as many as we more normally do in the regular season. And then, all right, so now what is that going to look like? You know, for a while they were talking about having us fly back and forth to Florida, then realized that wasn't going to work. And then it was, all right, could we get you inside the bubble for three months? And and that wasn't going to work for anybody. And then, all right, are we going to call the games from studio? Like, so that that whole thing didn't come together in terms of what we were doing in ter- uh, covering the WNBA until a couple weeks before the season started. So I have no idea what college seasons are going to look like. You know, right now, a lot of places, a lot of states, their their numbers are going back up again in terms of positivity rate for COVID. What are schools going to still um, stay optimistic that practices will start in November and games will start, you know, what conference games, I believe everyone's planning to start in January. So will there be preseason, will there be a preseason tournament in a bubble somewhere where you bring a bunch of women's teams in to get some non-conference games and I don't know the answer to any of that stuff. I'm reading about all that just like you guys are. Um, and, you know, it's just going to be ready to roll with it. And uh, again, in, in terms of us broadcasting games, I, I would assume we'll, we'll, it'll be a similar situation like WNBA where I'll be driving to Bristol to call a game or people will be calling games from their homes. Um, I, I honestly don't know how that's all going to come together. 
yeah, certainly a lot of unknowns as we kind of segue into the college season, but um, everybody make sure you're staying safe and we'll hope for the best. And it seems like, fingers crossed, there was going to be a season, but when that begins and what that looks like, like you said, in terms of a bubble and conference um, play, that's going to be very dependent on the conference and location. There's so many factors, like you said, that we there's a lot we don't know right now. But before we let you go, and I, I toss this back to Aria, a uh, really important question. What advice would you give um, your teenage self or any young female um, knowing what you know now in terms of not even just trying to be successful as a basketball player, as a uh, professional, but what advice would you get, give yourself to be successful in life? Woo. Um, you come with the, the heavy ones at the end. <laughs> you know, um, I think that like the the biggest thing in life and anything you do, right, is to stay true to yourself and to have a, a a great work ethic. Like I've got four kids, I have no idea yet what their interests are going to be, what they're going to want to do. And and as a parent or as a coach or as anything else, your biggest thing is to hope that you can teach your kids to know how to work hard. Um, and because that's going to take you so far already. Um, so to develop a work ethic and then stay true to yourself and hopefully yourself means that you know the difference between right and wrong and you do the right thing. So, um, and you know, if I was giving advice to myself as a younger person, I was really, really shy. And, um, and the piece of advice would be like, don't be afraid to speak out when you know you're right. And I don't mean like, you know, in a classroom or in wherever, like, I know the answer. And this, if something's happening and there's a right and a wrong and you know you're right, like speak out and be confident in it. And it's okay if there's, there's might be some repercussions for it. It's really important in, in our world. And again, I wish I had a stronger voice when I was younger, even when I was a, you know, 22 year old playing in the WNBA or, or at any point in my WNBA career, like, again, going back to the, the, the women in the league now who are using their voice and are speaking out when they believe they're right. Like, I wish I was stronger in my voice in my day and making stronger statements um, when things were happening where, you know, I may have, may have had a platform to do more. Um, that would be, I guess, the advice I'd give to myself. Well, to finish up this podcast, I want to hit you with a quote, a very wise quote, one of the best quotes I've seen around from a Wikipedia page, as most things are these days. <laughs> See if you know the quote. My oldest daughter, who was four and a half, and my husband were watching UConn men playing on television in the living room. My daughter walked in the room and looked at the TV and said to Steve, are those boys playing? And I said, yes. And my daughter said, I didn't know boys played basketball. You have raised an amazing household, and I tip my cap to you, and I thank you so much for joining us and taking the time, especially the day after the WNBA Finals are over when you probably uh, want to relax with the family, and you took the time to join us for the show. So thank you so much, Rebecca. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. That four-year-old, four-and-a-half-year-old is now 15-and-a-half. So uh, wow. that, that, wow. just, that just makes me like go, woo, time's going a little bit fast. I should have I should have adjusted the the age to the current age. Yeah. Oh, you got to you got to stay true to the quote. How great would it be if my 15 and a half year old came in and said, "Oh, I didn't know boys played basketball too." <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh my god. Well, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. All right, guys, thank you.